Hello and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, June 28th, 2013. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week, we talk about responsive design, progressive enhancement, and development tools in the context of a big, huge site redesign. Please stay tuned. The Niche Podcast is next. I almost didn't get my name out there. <laughs> it's Sometimes it's hard, I know. <laughs> How's it going? Um, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> More barbecue chicken disease. That's no good. Yeah. But hey, you got a, you got a free iMac or something? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> Until they figure out they haven't charged me for it yet, probably. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah, they they shipped it before processing the payment. Oopsie. Mm-hmm. Hopefully they don't listen to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but if, they, if they don't process it in a, a week or two, I'll give them a call. Yeah. Give them a chance to catch it first so, so, so I'm not then screwed up and charged twice. Yes. That recently happened to me. That exact same thing. where the uh, Not with the product, but where the fix was worse than the original problem. Yeah. Six months later, finally get it worked out. So I'm the person that, that stole garbage collection for seven years, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where to go with that. Yeah. It wasn't intentional. It never is. When, when you steal garbage collection. Anyway. So you're gonna, moving on. Yeah, moving, moving right along. You mentioned uh, before the show you're going to do a Rails 4 project. I guess Rails 4 was announced today, huh? Uh, yeah, I think it was yesterday it was released, and um, uh, I haven't really done anything with it yet, but yeah, I'm just going to dive in and work on a silly little silly little weekend project and and just go ahead and do it in Rails 4, I think. We had we had planned to, plan, me and a friend had planned to work on it this weekend anyway, and then with the Rails 4 announcement yesterday, just, you know, what the heck, just dive in and do it in Rails 4. Cool. Any, like, any particular big changes? Uh, to be honest, I haven't really had a chance to keep up with it that much. So I, I'm not the right person to ask that question right now. Hmm. Um, I need to go through and, and read some of the, some of the changes. I believe, I believe they just, they had done more towards, um, decoupling some things and, and things that were built into rails by default. Now you just, you can include via gems if you use them or don't, that kind of thing. Oh, cool. A little more modular maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think I think Active Record is one of those. Huh, cool. Because I I assume with various various different database types and NoSQL stores and all that that not everyone using Rails needs Active Record. Oh, good point. I was going to say Active Record seems like the main attraction of Rails, but uh, yeah, that's a good point. Well, I look forward to hearing all about it on a future episode. Yes. Um, so yeah, just some quick housekeeping before we blast into the content. Um, if you've been following along, dear listener, uh, you know that we've, the last week and the week before, loosely speaking, the last two episodes, I should say, um, we've been doing a screencast. Is it two or three? Am I, we've done three so far, haven't we? We've done three. I don't know. Are they all three up? Yeah, I think it's, yes, the one I posted this morning is the third one. So okay. we've done three screencast in what looks like it'll be a four-part series on building a um, 
a Rails API, sorry, a, a REST API with Rails, which now will probably be out of date with Rails 4, but okay. <laughs> um, but we have to take a break from that this week and do a regular podcast. And then we'll probably next week get back to that fourth installment and hopefully final installment of that. Uh, cool. So uh, the last few weeks um, for me have been totally crazy, you know, sleeping in three hours a night, if at all, and just working on these two projects where the schedules uh, ended up colliding. They were supposed to be back to back, but they ended up simultaneous for a variety of reasons, but they were um, both very similar projects with um, almost the identical team. Uh, I was working with um, Josh Clark and Brad Frost and Dan Mall and a few other folks on a couple of big, big publishing websites. And since a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in this show has been smaller kind of sites, I thought it would be cool to do a little bit of a post-mortem um, about how our our niche spiel kind of applies in to a larger context and how well it works or doesn't work or what might be different that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be interesting. Cause we, we do, we talk about building a lot of small sites, but and interesting to see what bits of the things we talked about, you put in practice on the big ones. Mm, yeah. There were a couple of exceptions, but, but you know, TLDR, it basically all works. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> that's good to know. Yes. Um, and yes. join us next week for, <laughs> that's our show for this week yeah um yeah so i i I don't know if we need to go into too much depth on each one of these i'll just i'll go in and and blast through and if you have questions i guess we can kind of expand on some of the points but i think it falls into three big categories of responsive design progressive enhancement and the and development tools all of those i I learned a lot about each of those things in the context of these projects. And I should say that the, that um, they haven't gone live yet because they're in the integration phase now, which another company is doing. And I totally cannot wait to announce these because I'm super proud of both sites. Yeah, um, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I cannot wait. But um, And they're both just such huge improvements. And I, I think the clients in both cases, I, I know that they agree. It's like the existing sites are just, in one case, it's, uh, it's going to completely replace the current desktop site, which is a super radical change. And in the other case, it's going to, the new site is going to replace the M dot and T dot sites and potentially become the new desktop site, but not quite yet. Yeah. I'm, I'm really jealous that I didn't get to help you out with those, but I was right in the middle of my own things when you had that going on. Yeah, it was nuts. So the T it's worth pointing out that the teams in both cases were basically the same people on on our side of the fence and on the client side, we're, we're dealing in both cases with upwards of 10 or 20 stakeholders. So there's a lot of project management, a lot of input, um, a lot of back and forth in the design rounds that um, were done by two different content strategists but and, and uh, information architect people. But the actual design and the uh, design elements were put together by Dan Mall is super friendly, just totally amazing, amazing work. And then uh, Brad Frost would take the that and turn it into HTML templates, and and then I would come in and sort of swoop in at the end and do all the really geeky JavaScript interactions and all of the the website integrations for the dev environment. So that that was the basic. And then Josh Clark was managing the whole thing. So that was the basic setup to give you a feel for how many people are involved. So both projects you're talking like you know both sides of the fence. You're talking like 
uh, easily 30, 20, 30, 30 people. Yeah. Easy 20, maybe 30 people. Um, okay. So, so with that context set, uh, just a couple of points about responsive design, both projects were pure responsive design. It was, that was the whole point of the project was to, to take, um, a situation where companies had two or three versions of their website and turn it into one or two. And, uh, like I teased a minute ago, it totally works. Like responsive of design completely, uh, is, it's awesome. And we say this all the time, but it's sometimes it's arguable like, well, yeah, but if you have this huge site with tons of different page templates, you know, does it really, does it scale so to speak? And the answer is yes, it totally works. It's, it's, um, you know, you do have to start small and work your way up. We've said that tons of times. It's it's even more true on a really complicated site. Both sites are extremely complicated from a design standpoint. Mm-hmm. They change radically uh, at the different screen sizes. Um, so uh, it can feel like extra work, especially when you're testing, because yeah. you know every time you make a change, you get to pull out your Android 2.3 device. You got to pull out a Kindle Fire. You got to pull out a Nook. We were testing a Nook, Kindle e-readers. We were testing on um, Windows Phone. Like you name it. Um, and and that feels really really hard. But it's it's. I don't think it's really any extra work because you only have one site. You would have had to do all that testing anyway. But it would have <laughs> right. been on three different sites. Right. Um, and then you would have been trying to track bugs between them, and yeah, yeah, it's it feels a little whack a moleish uh, at times, no doubt. But that's you know that's web design anyway. I don't, that's not specific to responsive. Um, but the good news is that browsers are getting really good. Uh, we used a ton of really advanced techniques on the in the progressively enhanced versions of the sites um, that I'll talk about more when we get to that. But um, Really, the the big exceptions right now in terms of popular browsers that have uh, still a reasonably significant market share, the Android 2.3 device browsers, the stock browser on Android 2.3, is, mm-hmm. it's really awful at some of the more advanced things. And obviously, IE8 and, and lower is a little rough. Um, but totally, you can, just, you can totally make it work. So those are the ones you have to watch out for. But things like... Um, Basically, any modern iOS browser, um, all of the Android stuff that's 4.1.1 is a little wonky, but not too bad. But as soon as you get up to 4.2.2, I think it is, or Android 4.2, the browser is really good. Um, Windows Phone browser has been good from the start. I guess it's a mobile version of IE10. Uh, So, you know, BlackBerry, I can't, you know, BlackBerry's rough, but... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, sort of depressingly, I suppose for them, nobody even cared about testing on BlackBerry. So, right. um, sad. So, yeah, I mean, you know, they ignored reality for too long. <laughs> so, uh, I guess the the only things I, from a technical standpoint, the only thing I want to mention is that I am I'm frequently quoted or frequently heard saying that. Uh, you should always do min width media queries. So when you're doing responsive web design, you, you a, a big tool in the in the box of responsive web design is media queries. And you know the, the as the saying goes, the first media query is no media query. So you assume that that you you create like a default non media query experience. 
or a right. de default experience outside of media queries that should be targeted to a narrow screen or a small screen width. And you sort of enhance it from there uh, using min width media queries, which we've talked about at length, so I won't go into the logic behind that. But Yeah, I, I wish max width didn't even exist because people... <laughs> right, because people, people use usually, and I'm going to say like 80% of the time, when you see somebody using max width, it's them they trying started to... started with the desktop. Right, they started with the desktop and they're trying to reverse engineer or shoehorn it into a mobile site. So I, I don't... I'm not really against that. I just think it's it's very difficult to do, and it's it's just it's a lot harder if you know that's what you're doing, and you're just you know you you have a desktop site, and you just want to do some tweaks to make it a little bit better on mobile. Then fine, throw in some max with media queries. But if you're starting a project from scratch, you're almost always making a mistake by using max width because it indicates that you're you're going from big to small. Yeah, in fact, my my very first project that I did with media queries, um, I did that way because at the time I didn't know any better, and the desktop layout was what I'd been handed by the designer. Mm -hmm. And the end result was there was a lot. Uh, there ended up being a lot of duplication in the CSS. The mm -hmm. CSS and CSS files got a lot larger than they needed to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I I will. It was very noticeable to me during this project at one point when I decided I needed to use a max with media query. And I was like, wow, this is a good, <laughs> this is a, so. <laughs> this I, never happens. Yeah, this is really, I, I, I tried and tried to do it with min width. And then I was like, what am I doing? Just max with this thing and it'll be done. So I, I wanted to pick call special attention to that. And this, the situation was that um, this in the small screen, they're basically, um, three major breakpoints. They're not really specific, uh, but it, for the, the situation I'm thinking of, the site that I'm thinking of, there were basically three major breakpoints. There's kind of like small screens, which are sort of like your small to medium-sized phones. Then you had kind of like big screens, which were seven-inch tablet-y. And then bigger than that was kind of like iPad and bigger. Yeah. And the there's search functionality at the top that was really really complicated. It had uh, it was drastically it was designed drastically different uh, on the small screen and on the large screens. And interestingly, the bulk of the CSS applied to the small screen had to do tons of clever stuff to hide uh, hide the small screen version. And also, there's a pop up on it to change the scope of the search kind of like on Amazon where you can search just inside of books or just inside of vacuum cleaners or whatever. Yeah. And there's a ton of CSS applied to that that was uh, for styling that pop-up that you didn't that you could do much more easily on uh, larger screens or desktop screens and so I had all of this CSS that I that you know I put in as the default so start small I put in all the CSS and then as I was going up to the larger breakpoints I was trying to remove it all. And whenever you're trying to like override a lot of CSS that was defined higher up in the document, oh yeah, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, so what I was like, oh well, all of this CSS really only applies to this small screen situation. So I just did a max width, and then as soon as I popped over, I don't remember exactly, but let's say it was 320, 320 pixels or whatever. We did it in M's, whatever the M's were. Uh, I was probably I think it was around 18 M's. Um, then all those things were gone. All that very, very small screen specific stuff was just gone. Never had to worry about it again. And you could just move on to your, your, uh, 
higher up media queries. Yeah. And the, that's, those are the places where the max width is really useful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you're trying to basically delete a bunch of stuff you did at a smaller size. Yeah. So the, the flip side of that though, is that, um, you want to make sure that you've got some default styling for that that sort of widget that is going to work on devices that are small but don't respect that they won't recognize the max width media query so they'll ignore all those rules right so you do still want to have like a non-media query set of rules that will make a usable experience and not just hide it you know make the search invisible basically so i thought that was worth mentioning can move on to progressive enhancement that kind of segues in there uh, yeah now i didn't really I, I did only enough css to enable certain javascript functions so the way that it the way that we did it there's a real separation of concerns between uh the h you know brad doing the html and the css and me doing the javascript but there was some overlap where uh for example um, Brad would do, he would write some interactions using like hover or whatever, uh, or uh, every once in a while he'd throw in a click handler just so he could demo the spaghetti frames for the client. Right. So he would kind of venture into JavaScript territory a little bit and I would, I would venture into CSS territory and sometimes the HTML territory when I had to write where like the amount of JavaScript I was going to have to write was ridiculous when all I really need to do is change the source order of the HTML um, or a situation where I was building a widget and certain pieces of the styling needed to be exposed for customization later. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the client wouldn't have to dig through the JavaScript to theme like some kind of complicated widget. Right. Right. They could just change the CSS. Right. And there yeah. was... I said I was just going to ask you how it was because usually there's not there's usually not that separation of, of HTML CSS guy and then JavaScript guy. It's it's usually like front end guy and back end guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of it's kind of an interesting uh, way to do it. There, I guess I guess on a, on a really large project it makes sense, but it's probably not how a lot of a lot of people work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I honestly, in retrospect, I I think it would have been a little better if I had gotten involved in the spaghetti frames stage and done the, the little JavaScript interactions that Brad did, because some of the things that I had to do involved uh, reorganizing the markup. And that, that was mm -hmm. a little, that became a little tricky because, you know, he had written so much CSS that was dependent on the markup being in a particular way. So we had to really coordinate to get that done. Um, right. But, but I mean, overall, but that was very minor overall. It was really, it was a good, really good workflow. And, uh, but in, while I was writing the JavaScript, I was very conscious. I mean, some CSS, I didn't want the client to ever be able to touch cause it was really structural to the interaction. Mm -hmm. Things like applying, for example, uh, programmatically applying widths to, to things or programmatically applying, uh, transitions to stuff only when, uh, only when the device supported it or, or whatever. So, um, I would try and embed that stuff in, in the JavaScript where it was less likely to get tweaked by accident. Yeah. Um, so that kind of touches on uh, feature detection. That was so, so the notion of progressive enhancement that we generally espouse is what we did here, which is that we started with semantic, well, we started with designs basically like style tile kind of designs and some page, some very basic page, you know, black and white wireframes. 
Uh, but the, we went to HTML really quickly, and Brad is is like an animal about doing very semantic markup. He was he was religious about it, which I love. Um, and then he would apply the CSS to it, and you know he he was using min width, so he was building up, building up on the styles and everything. And then I came in and would do the same thing. So it was like uh, we did use Modernizer to you to do feature mm-hmm. detection. It's one of the very few libraries we included, and um, and we would do things like uh, what's an example? So we would do detection for um, SVG. Like, does this browser currently have SVG support? Uh, because Dan and Dan and Brad used a lot of SVG for icons and that kind of thing in order to uh, basically create vector graphics that would scale up without any kind of shenanigans on retina screens. Yeah. And I was I was surprised. I was not. I did not realize that SVG was as well supported as it is. Uh, it's it's super. It's super duper. I mean, it's great. It seems like it was not that well supported not that long ago. Yeah, I was really taken by. I was like, you guys are really going to use SVG, but it 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 works great. You know, it's it's a fantastic solution. I basically, and I was not familiar with it uh, enough as I should have been, but it's basically a way to dynamically create ping file PNG files mm-hmm. um, that are vector. So it, it's not they're not really PNGs, but it's like you th- you can think of them like. Any place you'd use uh, a ping, you could use SVG in certain browsers. And like I said, it worked great. Uh, they also used a lot of icon fonts. That was, frankly, that was a little trickier mm. than uh, SVG. But basically, what we did was in the in the CSS that Brad wrote, he just he wrote it. Um, he wrote it by default to to try and use SVG, and then we would swap. And then we also had a PNG version of all of the SVG graphics. And then I wrote JavaScript on window load to go in and say, hey, if SVG is not supported, then go swap out the PNGs with, um, uh, sorry, swap out the SVG, any image that has uh, SVG, then uh, switch it to PNG, and in which was like actual image tags. And then in the CSS yeah. code, he coded it. So it was like, you know, dot no dash SVG. And then he did a background image for every item and just use the mm-hmm. PNG version of it. So then, so what do you do? Just add classes? Yeah, at page load, modernizer would add either SVG or no SVG class to the HTML element. So we would just, he just wrote CSS to... Keep, and keep the backgrounds in those classes. Yeah. Right. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, and honestly, the, the way that he did it is really a graceful degradation approach because he assumed SVG support and then failed back to PNGs and... It would have worked out the same either way. Yeah, I, th- I think so. The only, the only issue, I suppose, would be that on the, um, for, for kind of like content images, like actual image tags, not CSS, mm-hmm. the, um, you'd be uh, serving the PNG until the page loaded, and then you'd be grabbing the SVG. And so since a lot of the, the mobile browsers that we were targeting do support SVG, we were like, we defaulted to that. Right, right. Um, but anyway, SVG is definitely ready for prime time in your projects. I, I am convinced after doing this project that it's something to uh, something to use on probably every that's, project. That's a, that's a bandwagon I will hyperly jump on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't ask me how they made the SVG. I have no idea. I assume it's something that you, you can... You can do an Illustrator. Illustrator can export as SVG. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, another thing we did to great effect, uh, which was fairly simple to implement uh, JavaScript-wise, was lazy-loading images. 
and one one of the sites in particular has a huge huge long homepage with lots of images that are you know big enough size that it's a loading issue yeah so we went in and basically uh, have them author the HTML anything that they feel is going to be you know basically roughly below the fold if, if something probably below the fold then what they do is point the source of the image tag at like a, a one by one pixel ping super small uh, mm-hmm. ping and add a data attribute to the image the tag with the real URL yeah yeah and then as you scroll down replacing the we didn't do it on scroll although we talked about it um, we actually Josh actually talked to Steve Suters about this and he's kind of like you know the Dalai Lama of performance <laughs> and he was like, yeah, you could do that. But really, you know, just, just load up the page, get the top of the page loaded. And then as soon as you're done with that, then have a script go through and pull and then, you know, oh. swap out all that stuff. So you're not waiting for it to load as you scroll. It's just quietly doing it after the first top of the page is loaded. Right. And you, there is a way to do it that's slicker than what we did, which would be to go through and define in each of the image tags what the height and width is going to be. Oh, I started to say, I, 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 had a, I just assumed you had done that. Right, that's the slick way to do it, but there was no way for them to author that in the mm. current backend system, and it was, it'd be mm. too much work. They just wouldn't do it. So that was another reason to not do it on scroll, because as you scroll down, these one-by-one one pixel images would all of a sudden be expanding into right, their natural right. size, and uh, that wasn't going to fly. So we just said, okay, get the page loaded so people can start looking at the top, you know, 1,000 pixels or 2,000 pixels, get all that stuff loaded. And it, it's like bang fast. It cut a lot of time off the load. Nice. Yeah. So then, and then if they look at that even for like a couple seconds, then by the time they scroll down, everything else is loaded. Nice. So that was, uh, that was really, and it was really easy to implement. Was, you know, you can imagine it's like yeah, yeah, five it doesn't, lines of code. doesn't sound difficult at all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we used a we used a um, let's see SVG. We used feature detection, uh, a lot of feature detection for things like uh, touch handling and SVG. Or um, some of the other things. I don't think Modernizer detects uh, support for position fix, but we we sort of did it. We had to do uh, user agent sniffing Oops. for some things. Most things support position fix now. And the newer stuff. Yeah, it's the, it's Android two point three that causes a problem. Yeah. And uh, but yes, a lot of the do a lot of do support fixed positioning. Some a little wonkier than others, and some uh, have some weird rules around it. I mean, it's it's mobile we're talking about here. Those yeah. where you have the problem. Some of them uh, force you know you have to you have to disable zoom on the page. Uh, there's a couple of su- surprise gotchas. Uh, oddly enough, the Kindle e-reader supports fixed positioning. <laughs> if you can believe that. Of all things. I'll link to a Brad did a great post on um, on where fixed positioning works. Uh, but the bottom, the important, which I'll link to in the show notes. But the the important thing to point out is that at some point we did have to do some user agent sniffing because yeah. certain browsers will lie about support or they'll have partial support that is it's not good enough to do what we're trying to do and we'll just be like you know look we're, we're it works everywhere except for right here so just throw in the damn conditional 
Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, it gets down to that point where it's time to ship and, you know, you're talking about a, a fraction of your market. It's just a tiny group of people that are uh, uh, on these older devices and, you know, maybe 5%, but you don't want to, you don't want to give them a crappy experience. So not the end of the world, but it is the kind of thing that you do need to maintain over time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so that was, I think that was everything uh, regarding the progressive enhancement, but it's a, it, when I, I was kind of like the last person to test because my code was going in last and, you know, I have to mm -hmm. like concatenate the JavaScript and minify it and then go test everything again. And, um, and it, like taking this, taking the approach of this really fluid, responsive design, it didn't have hard breakpoints. It was basically just sort of fluid from small to medium to large to extra large. And, uh, and you add that and then layer in the, layer in the uh, sort of JavaScript based progressive enhancements. It worked great. It was, it was so, it, most of the time I'd, launch a browser and some device and I'd be scared it was going to be totally broken and it was everything was fine nice yeah it's awesome I can't wait to see these <laughs> yeah I can't wait to share them <laughs> yeah so that's kind of a good segue into um, tools that we used uh, that that were super super useful so I guess the first two to mention are kind of go without seeing but they're worth mentioning uh, Basecamp and GitHub were like critically important pieces of our infrastructure yeah not having that, either one of those would have been a disaster that brings up a question have you tried codebase i don't think so it sounds familiar code, codebase yeah codebase is like what you would get if you took github and basecamp and like squished them together mm. it's i mean it's it's got project it's pro basically it's project management with source control hmm interesting and you can you can reference Reference open tickets in your get commits, and they'll it'll show you know your commits will show up in your in your ticket thread mm. for your project and and that kind of stuff. It's yeah, it would have. I I will say that I found myself doing a lot of a lot of this. So I'll describe the sort of workflow that I had a lot of. Uh, we had internal. So for each each client, we had an internal project that was just communication between the mm -hmm. our team of like five to seven people, depending on what stage of the process we were in. And then there was like a public version of the project where the client was potentially right. in the loop. So we would have like a ton of internal discussion and then that would usually um, result in like one post by Josh in the public site. So they didn't have to listen to the right. entire thread. So here's, here's the workflow that could have been in, improved, although it wasn't too painful, but um, that we would put all the to-dos in the internal Basecamp project and then as I would go down and knock them off, I would pretty much, pretty much, it was like commit per to-do, depending on how complicated the to-do was. Mm -hmm. But if the to-dos were appropriately sized, then I would, you know, I'd go fix it or I'd go add it and then I'd do the commit. And then I would have to, and then almost always <laughs> the commit message, I would copy it, go over into the, uh, into Basecamp, comment on the to-do, like paste in the commit message. The commit message. And it would have, it would have been really cool if if I could have linked the to dos to the commits. Yeah, yeah. So you could have used Codebase for that and mm -hmm. linked them up. Yeah, that's uh, that's good to know. That would be. I think if I was going to, I think if we were doing maintenance, long term maintenance on a project, that would be 
even more attractive because yeah, it would wear on you really over nice time. Yeah, support tickets and that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's that's good to know. Code base, so cool. So um, another thing uh, that that Brad created is something that he eventually open sourced and released a polished up version of that he calls Pattern Lab, and it is a um, it's basically an iframe. It's like a it's like a little very sh- short toolbar across the top with an iframe underneath it, and it's got a menu. It's kind of hard to describe. It's kind of hard to describe, but it allows you to create little HTML modules that get that you can inspect individually. You can like click on a, a molecule, let's say a search form or something like that, and it will show it in the iframe, uh, or you can collect all of a bunch of little modules together and create a page out of them or a template or um, an organism he calls them uh, and that can become like uh, a higher higher up the list it's kind of i can't really describe it but um, it allows you to create small pieces that of html css and javascript that you can then assemble into larger uh, groupings uh, and also uh, on the other side of the UI, it lets you has like small, medium, large, extra large buttons that you can click on, and it resizes the iframe to be narrow or wide. It's even got like I think he called it disco mode, where you just click on it and it just resizes like <laughs> randomly and 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 continuously. And it's great for um, showing the the site to clients because you can say, mm-hmm. okay, you know, go here, click on the small and go through and look at everything. We're not ready for you to look at the extra large yet, but so you don't have to depend on them like sizing the window to the right size or, you know, yeah. them like looking at it wrong. But it was, um, at first I was kind of like, eh, you know, I could just do this by docking the developer tools to the right-hand side. But I, after a while, I will say, I did come to rely on it quite a bit and it, it's, uh, it's a really nice thing. So check out patternlab.bradfrost.com. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's it's I guess uh, I don't know how different the re- one he released is from the one that we've been using, but um, it's like a PHP thing. So you you'd create your stuff with PHP behind the scenes, but I'm sure you could port it to Ruby without too much difficulty. There's only really one. Uh, I think there's only there's only like one real function that does the the include. So you, I'm sure you could port it really easily. So it doesn't look like much, but if it when you're working on a project for weeks and weeks and weeks, it does become pretty convenient uh, and adds up over time. And so the last thing uh, I think you'll be very interested to know is that mm-hmm. uh, I, I, since the project was, uh, I mean, the style sheets are enormous. There's like, yeah. it's easily hands down the largest style sheet I've ever had to go near. Uh, in terms of work, you know, work. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brad used uh, SAS for it. So when it came time for me to do my CSS, I generally created my own CSS file, included that in the page, and I'd do all my work in there uh, to try and avoid SAS. But then ev- eventually I would have to take that and integrate it into the SAS files if he didn't have time to do it. Yeah. And I have to say, I'm not as anti-SAS as I have been on previous episodes, um, <laughs> but I still, I still don't love it. It's there's certain things about it that are cool, but I don't think, I don't think they're SAS things. Like I don't really care for this. The syntax is okay. The nesting syntax is okay. Um, 
it's okay. I, I don't. I could go either way on it. Sometimes it's convenient. Sometimes it's a pain. Uh, but I used uh, your favorite tool, maybe not your favorite, but uh, CodeKit to kind of make this easier for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it worked great sometimes, and other times it would crash my computer. So I don't, I don't know what the story was. That must have been big. It was huge. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't I haven't actually used CodeKit in a while, um, but that's mainly because I've been dealing with um, with Rails applications, and Rails has all of that. Um, the asset management built in with the sprockets with the sprockets gem. That's cool. Yeah. So it, it was definitely. Uh, so there were times when I would want to do work uh, on a remote server, and then like you just you can't just change it because then you have to recompile everything, and and I, I you know I had to learn how to compile it at the command line, which actually is far easier once you know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and but the thing about it, what the SAS syntax, the nesting, and the the variables, I could take or leave that, like whatever. But the thing that's awesome is is the way that he had like this one master SCSS file that just included all the other ones, and there were I mean there were like forty or fifty other little files that got included, but it became so manageable having that stuff in separate files. Yeah, and and I don't know if that's really a SAS thing or a Compass thing, but I mean you can do that with regular CSS, right? I've never gone to the trouble. Yeah, you, but you could, yeah. You just, just use import, import statements, right? Yeah. But that wouldn't compile it. This compiles it into one right. file. Right. It wouldn't have it all compiled into one. Right. So there are a couple of things about CodeKit that I that there, I don't think I'll continue to use CodeKit because of the crashiness, but there's a, it, it has a feature that I will want to use in the future, which is the automatic compiling of the CSS and automatic minification of the JavaScript and with the syntax checking. Yes. That I loved. Yes, I do like that about it, but really I have, I've really only used CodeKit on small projects and I, it probably, the last time I tried it on a big project, I did have some, some issues with slowness and a couple of crashes. And It literally I locked mean, up I, my computer yeah, on yeah. multiple I mean, occasions. I, I just, it should probably handle those better, but at the same time, I get the feeling that it's not designed for the really big stuff. Because they figure the really big stuff, you're going to be using something, some sort of command line mm-hmm. tool, build tool. Yeah, I suppose. It's, uh, for a project of this size, it, it is, it was, I don't know if we would have been able to manage it without having the CSS broken out into individual, individual files yeah. like that. How you decide to scrunch them all together it doesn't matter to me, um, but uh, it, it was. I loved it. It was great. It's even even though you, you know with Sublime Text you can get that mini map view and you can really easily see a huge file and navigate around. Forget it. It's, having yeah. them in individual <laughs> files is awesome. Yes. So huge fan of that. It requires some discipline. I mean, you can you can you have to adhere to the you know the the logic. Right, like whatever structure you've decided on. Right, like there were a couple times when I was like, "Damn, I don't know. This is this is in the header, but it's search. So should I be putting it in nav or in header or you know?" So the, search, right? Yeah. So where do I put it? Or in forms because it's a search form. Um, but yeah. Brad had a he in the in the uh, main file, the include file, the s the the scs file that did nothing but import all the other stuff. He wrote this huge table of contents with mm-hmm. uh, basically instructions on what should go where. It was just genius. It's like so obvious, yeah. but it was genius. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, so it was so I think it, it was great. I think everything that we talk about and advocate was totally validated on this project and these projects. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it was so great. So much fun. Yeah, I, I wish I'd gotten gotten a chance to help you out with them. Um, but me too. I, know at, at one point, I know at one point you had asked me, and I, I think there were a couple of times where you probably could have used a hand. Oh, man. You were so... But I mean, you know, at that point, it was too late for too far along for me to really jump in and 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 save time. Or you know, I I was right. extremely busy with a couple of things of my own at the beginning. So. Right. Yeah, I know it. Yeah. It would have been. Well, I feel like I'm ready. I'm ready to have a baby in October after this because it was like. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, you're going to. So. Yeah. Yeah. Baby 2.0 is set to ship in October. Yeah. And uh, I definitely. I haven't. I haven't in my life have not pulled that many all-nighters not in college ever <laughs> ever i'm like i'm yeah, trying to get yeah. back on my regular schedule <laughs> for like a month there where you just didn't sleep yeah i would i would sleep i would just grab like an hour or two on the floor or or you know go try and it was crazy it was like i would i didn't i didn't ever sleep i just napped occasionally <laughs> yeah i'd talk to you at 5:30 in the morning go, i have to be up at seven but i'm gonna go right go to bed now yeah, it was it was rad. Yeah, but I it really um, it was so great. Just I get to wrap up. It was so great working with um, this team because they, I'm you know, as dear listener will know, I don't normally care that much about the more advanced CSS things, and I'm just like meh, you know. But since I got drug into it by these guys who totally know what they're doing and they know what works and, and that even a small, small benefit on a huge project is a big optimization. Um, really pulled me, pulled me sort of kicking and screaming into some of the future, more futuristic CSS things at least, and definitely into some of the newer tools. So that was, that was awesome. Yeah. Really cool. Fun. Yeah, and I got to buy, I had an excuse to buy a couple of devices in the process to do testing. There you go. That's always good. Yeah. But did you get, you had to pay for yours, though. Yeah, but as long as I have yeah, an excuse, I, didn't get I don't for mind. Mine. <laughs> <laughs> Yet. Yeah. Speaking of which, I can't sign off uh-huh. without sharing with the dear listener your big Wait, news. You have, to, you have to share fast. I have to leave in one minute. Sorry. Okay, well, we'll hold off, but I, we can, it's, I was going to talk about your Hue light bulbs. Oh, yes, yes. We'll have to get those next week. Uh, excellent. Okay, so we'll talk about that they are, then. They're awesome. All right, so that's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. I'm Kelly Shaver. And we hope you join us again next week for the Niche Podcast. Bye. Bye.